Father God, we thank you for this opportunity tonight to go through your word, to have this meeting. But Lord, I want to ask in a special way right now. At first, you send angels that excel in strength to be given charge over this place, that excel in wisdom and in strength. Father God, bind up this place, protect us, block out the enemy. But Lord, I want something else. I want to ask Father God that you send your Holy Spirit into this place and that Lord, by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross, one, you be with all the technology, Lord. We know that the enemy's going to want to come against my computer, the projector, the microphones. I bind all of that up, Lord. Then, Father God, bind up the spirit that they're messing with down there. Bind it and let them realize there's no power there. Father God, for tonight, take control of this entire dormitory facility from the street all the way up where we are now. And then, Father God, your young people that are here who attend this school, Lord, let them know tonight that you are God who is in complete control of the affairs of men. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Let the church say amen and amen. All right. So I will confess to you that since my computer fell the other night, it has been misbehaving. It's very difficult to turn on. I had that problem in the States, and I... um. Went to the store and got it fixed. Since it fell, it's starting to do it again. So I'm going to leave it on probably until I leave. I may not ever turn it off. Sounds crazy, right? But I'll do it. <laughs> um, so pray for the computer. It's just, it's just acting funny. But let's just pray that we can get through everything tonight. So I wanted to go over to last night was digital rooftops. Tonight is the science of the side piece. Tomorrow night is confessions of a godly sinner. And last night we ended by asking the question, what are you doing on your rooftop? What are you looking at? What are you using your technology for? Do you send around texts to encourage people in Christ? Are you sending around texts trying to hook up with people? Are you on your phone watching things that you shouldn't be watching? Or are you on your phone watch, you know, using that technology to get you Bible study information or, or to watch sermons or listen to sermons on Audioverse? And I got to make sure I hook all of you up so that you know how to go to the Audioverse website and download thousands of sermons that are on there that are really good. And then um, we made this statement last night. We'll make it again tonight, but let me just remind you of this statement. Be careful what you entertain. Sin does what? It fascinates before it assassinates. And that is exactly what sin does. So our message tonight is the science of the side piece. We're going to read from 2 Samuel 11, 4. And David sent messengers and took her, and came in unto him, and he lay with her, was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived, sent and told David, and said, I am with child. This is, so I asked somebody today, what these soap opera looking shows I see on TV where they're filming in the village and there's all this drama. I can't understand what they're saying because they don't always speak English, but it's very dramatic. They told me it's called uh, Akon Drama. All right, so <laughs> you guys laugh. That's funny. In, in Spanish countries, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, they call them um, telenovelas. In English, they're soap operas in the States. But either way, this is a Bible soap opera, Akon Drama. I left you with a, with a cliffhanger. I left you with, she's pregnant. And then we, we left last night and we come back tonight to find out how does David go so, so deep into sin. So the message is entitled The Science of the Side Piece. And what I mean by that is the mechanism by which someone would get a side piece. And then, I don't know how many of you are familiar with that term. Relative, I don't know how old the term is, but it's a term that means when a man has a woman on the side from his wife. In Jamaica, they say he has a sweetie. I don't know what they say here. A side tick. That's gangster. Wow. <laughs> he has a side chick. Wow. Okay. That's worse than America. All right. So we're going to read back through the story, get you caught up, and then we're going to go forward in the story. They came to pass after the years the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon, seized Rabbah, 
But David tarried still at Jerusalem. That's the important part. And it came to pass in an evening tide, David arose from off his bed and he walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself. The Bible says, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? I told you last night, this was a warning. Don't mess with your homeboys, girl. Don't do it. David said the messengers and took and took her. And she came in unto him and he laid with her for she was purified from her uncleanness returned unto her house. The woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. If you're a married man, those are some of the happiest words you'll ever hear. If you're not, young men, <laughs> some of you would literally have a heart attack <laughs> if you're told that. So, it's an interesting story. It's timing. One, it's the David is supposed to be somewhere else. His timing is off. He's, he's where he's supposed to be. This never happened. But I want to talk about Bathsheba a little bit. David is idle. He's bored. He's a warrior. So he's looking for something to conquer. And Bathsheba becomes the thing he wants to conquer. Women, you have to realize sometimes men are after you because they want a conquest. And you got to be able to decipher the kind of man that wants you for a partner and the one that wants you for a trophy. Amen? Right? No poaching. You can't be, be careful. Don't let, let them come after you to make you a trophy. But the other part of this is that Bathsheba was in an interesting place. Her husband had been probably gone for months as well, maybe, or at least weeks. She, was, she had finished her cycle, and if you study biology, you understand that um, you know when a woman ovulates is actually a time when she may be she may have, uh, she may be um, hormonally uh, more um, ready for physical activity, if you know what I'm saying. And so, some of you get it, some of you don't. <laughs> the biology majors understand. Um, but you get what my point is. It was the time of month where she would be, theoretically at least, hormonally most desiring. It was a perfect storm. But the devil, like I said last night, he knows how to lay out a trap. I would imagine the enemy probably is the one who woke David up off his bed and led him up the stairs in a sense. And so we get a story where David is under the influence. He thinks because he's king, he is above the law like all the other kings at the time. He thinks the law doesn't apply to him. He wants a conquest. All of these things are going on. And so to, I'm going to give you several principles tonight as to how and why David falls. What happens? And if you follow the steps of his fall, you will understand. This is the science part. How it is that David gets into the mess he gets. So number one, your sin potential. That is how easy it is for you to fall into sin. And I made this into an equation. Equals secular influence, time self, divided by divine dependence. I know some of you are like, I left math class. Why is this man making up equations? But I like it because it makes it simple. The more you depend on God, whatever's in the denominator on the other side of the equation, the bigger that is, the smaller the thing on the other side of the equation becomes. So the bigger you, the more you depend on God, the lower your sin potential becomes. It's not that you have more willpower. Don't miss this. It's not that David didn't have willpower or had willpower. David has shown in his life he was gritty. He could, he could, he could exhibit self-control. When you stop depending on God, the thing that you fall into sin does what? Goes up, just like in the equation. The other part of it is the more self is exalted. He was king, and he liked being king, and he was uh, yielding the fruit of being king. Are you getting this? So his self, his ego, and men, unfortunately, women, you got to get this, men are often very ego-driven. So he was trying to, again, a conquest, a victory. He was looking for a lot of things. But he was so into himself, he'd beat everybody else. He'd taken over the, the, the house of Saul. All, everything was going for David. So his ego, his self, his pride, his flesh was super high. And if that's high on 
but in the numerator on the right side of the equation, percent potential goes up. But the last thing I want to put on here is something we talked about last night, and that's secular influence. So the more you're being influenced by the world, and we talked last night about when a young person watches a movie with sexual content, they're more likely, when they watch those types of movies, they're more likely to begin uh, inappropriate sexual activity earlier. So you've got to watch these three things. One, you've got to always be looking to, to depend more on God. Do not trust the arm of flesh. That means you don't put yourself in a position where you might fall. Watch this. If you're in the backseat of somebody's car making out and it's getting all steamy, the point where you can't see out the window, mercy church, and that's when you're going to try and make the decision keep your purity you might have waited too long. The decision should be made before you ever go out. The decision needs to be made in your prayer time, in your worship time, that I'm not even going to get into a situation where I might be compromised, where I might be tempted, where I might get stimulated. I'm going to make sure I stay out of those circumstances because I don't trust myself. So I'm going to depend on God to help me to stay out of those situations. That's why Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So that's the first principle. Your sin potential equals secular influence in your life times self which can be defined a lot of ways divided by divine dependence. Ellen White says, as all the lessons of Bible history teach, it is a perilous thing to praise or exalt men. For if one comes to lose sight of his entire dependence on God, and to trust in his own strength, he is sure to what? He is sure to fall. Once you begin to trust in yourself, you will fall. And this is the problem. Okay, I'm going to get off a little bit, but this is the problem those who become legalistic. Because if you become legalistic, sometimes you become self-righteous. You don't want that. Ellen White speaks against fanaticism, self-righteousness. Because you can become self-righteous and think, I keep the law. I'm doing right. They are all wrong. They are all heathens. They are, guess what happens? That's, even if you're outwardly behaving right, inwardly you're still feeding self the flesh. You get that? You always must depend on God. If you start trusting in yourself, you're sure to fall, the Bible says. It was the spirit of self-confidence, self-exaltation that prepared the way for David's fall. Flattery and the subtle allurement of power and luxury, luxury were not without effect upon him. That's the secular influence part of it. That's Patriots and Prophets, page 717. Principle number two. The distance from your mind to your hand is short. As a man thinketh, so is he. So the truth of the matter is if you sit all day and hope for something, pray for something, wish for something, contemplate on something, you're always thinking about something. And let's just say that that something is sex. If that's what is running through your mind all day, all the time, Here's the problem. What happens is eventually the devil's going to give you an opportunity to make what you were thinking reality. One of, my, one of the great pastors and preachers I've ever heard preach in my life was a man named E.C. Ward at Oakwood University. He was the pastor, the, the pastor of the university, well, it was the college church back then. And he, had, he was a hysterical preacher, but he was a very hard-nosed preacher. And he said in one of our messages, one Wednesday night, he was talking about sexual purity. That's how good it was. I'd never... This day I've never forgotten. And he said, if you are in your bed sleeping and you start having a dream of being impure sexually, he says, wake yourself up. Crazy, huh? But his point is, you've got to guard your thoughts, direct them away from those things because that's what the devil wants you to do. Because once you think it, the devil will give you the opportunity the way he works. So you got to fight the thoughts. 2 Samuel 11, 3 says, and David sent to inquire of the woman 
And one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of, the, of, Iliam, the, um, of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messenger and took her. She came in unto him, and he lay with her. He thought about it. It was in his mind. Guess what? It was a short distance to the time when he actually did it. Despite the warning given in, in verse 3. But Jesus says it like this, Matthew 5 and verse 28. Jesus says, but I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has done what? Has committed adultery with her already where? In his heart. It's the mind. What Jesus is saying is the distance is so short that if you sit and think about it enough, and all that's missing is the opportunity, you've sinned already. This is why pornography is a sin. Because when you're watching it by default, you're going there. That's why we don't watch it. That's why we, we shun that stuff. Because that stuff will corrupt you. And it is sin by default because of what it's getting you to think about. Principle number two continued. And instead of relying in humility upon the power of Jehovah, David began to trust to his own wisdom and might. As soon as Satan can separate the soul from God, the only source of strength, he will seek to arouse the unholy desires of man's carnal nature. The work of the enemy is not abrupt. Don't miss this part. It's not abrupt. It is not at the outset sudden and startling. It is a secret undermining of the strongholds of principle. It begins in apparently small things, neglect to be true to God, rely upon him wholly. Disposition to follow the customs and practices of the world. It doesn't start out with you doing what you never thought you would do. What you promised your mama you would never do. Now, if most of you are like my mother, you never talked about sex and intimacy. You just understood you weren't supposed to do it. Never a conversation, which isn't good. You should have these conversations with your, with your children. The churches should have these talks. They're young people, right? It's, it's, it, sex is not in itself evil. God designed sex to be enjoyed inside the marriage relationship. And in fact, if you do it God's way, you're the happiest, most fulfilled. And if you do it any other way, right? Well, you guys may not know yet. You're not married. So I'll take my word for it. Um, but what is important to remember is that it starts slow. It starts with inappropriate language sometimes. You're dating a guy and he's saying things to you that he shouldn't be saying. And you let it slide. Then he starts touching you in ways he really shouldn't be touching you. And you let that slide. And slowly but surely, the moral wall you have, or, or if you're a guy, it could be a girl that's coming on to you. The moral wall that you had, the, the, the determination to stay pure, can be chipped away slowly but surely. The devil isn't going to just, usually he's not going to jump in and just be abrupt. He's going to come in and slowly work down your walls. Principle number three, sin is aggressive. Sin spreads to every part of your life. Your response to its consequences reveals what was already there. Your response to its consequences. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Deep inside of all of us is darkness. We have, how many of us have sinned? What does the Bible say? Don't raise your hand. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, haven't we? That means in all of us, there's darkness. We'll come back around to that tomorrow night a little bit more. But the heart is deceitful. It makes you think you can handle what you can't handle. And it will lead you down a path. So David sinned, and this is where we're going now. The sin of adultery has been committed. But sin begets sin. It's aggressive. It will, it's like a tumor. It and one sin you never thought you would do would lead you to a whole nother sin you never thought you would do. That's the story of David here. David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David and when Uriah was coming to David, David demanded of him how Joab did and he and the people did and how the war prospered and David said to Uriah, listen, Go to your house. I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. Wash off your feet. Have a nice bath. Eat some good food. And Uriah departed out of the king's house. Verse 8. 
and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. So David was like, look, I need to get this guy's parasympathetic nervous system up. You do that by good food because the parasympathetic nervous system is the one that is used to initiate intimacy. So he's like, look, go home to your wife and here's a whole bunch of good food. What was David trying to do? David was trying to cover his own sin. This is diabolical. By sending the man home with a feast so that he, the man and his wife would basically have like a second honeymoon. Y'all getting this thing? And he knew that if Uriah slept with her in enough time, in a short enough period of time, that the, everyone would assume the babies was whose? Uriah's. In Jamaica, they call that wearing a jacket. I don't know, I'm sure there's a term for it here too. That you cover for, have him cover for David's sin. Have him believe David's child is his child. Verse 8 says that Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. He wouldn't even go home to his wife. With all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying Uriah went not down to his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Didn't you come a long way, Uriah? Why didn't you go down into your own house? This next verse, verse 11, is the second warning David gets. The first warning is, that's somebody, that's so-and-so's daughter, that's Uriah's wife. She's probably off limits, king. Here's the warning he gets before he messes up and has the man murdered. Uriah said unto David, the ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. My lord Joab, and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. Uriah's statement back to David is a statement that says, listen, standards still matter going in here and having a good time with my wife and eating all this food you're giving me. I'm not doing it while everybody else is out camping and at war. While the ark of God is out in a tent. I'm not doing that thing. I'm not going to violate the promise I made to you, to Joab, to the troops, to be out there valiantly fighting. If you have me here, I'm not going to do anything to be more comfortable than they are. That should have been the warning to David to say, okay, I need to go to God and figure my way out of this mess. But it didn't happen. But I want you to know when it comes to sin, God always provides. Principle number four, God always provides a warning and an escape. First Corinthians 10, 13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, who with the temptation also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. That was David's chance. And he blew it. So the story goes on. Verse 12. And David said to Uriah, tarry here today also and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and tomorrow. And when David called him, he didn't eat and drink before him and he made him drunk. But he gets, David gets aggressive. First, he tried, you know, just giving him a whole bunch of food. Now he tries to get the man drunk, but he succeeds. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord. He wouldn't go to his house. Even when he got drunk, he wouldn't go home. And it came to pass in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. This is when the story gets really mean. He wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in a letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the front, forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten, and that he won. And he died. Now, this is where David just gets. I mean, gangsters, nice of a word. David gets diabolical. Here's why this is so wicked. One, he writes a letter and has Uriah deliver his own death sentence. That is cruel. Uriah is so, such a faithful and loyal soldier that David doesn't even worry that Uriah will open the letter. Because I would have opened it. <laughs> no way. I got to walk three days or four days back to the battle. I wonder what's in this letter. Kind of curious. Nobody looking. Right? Most people, Uriah was so right, so um, loyal that David 
caused him to carry his own death sentence. That is crazy. And Uriah walked his own death sentence all the way back to Joab. And when Joab gets it, he, he, verse 16 says he observed the city, put Uriah in a place where he knew that the valley had been where he put Uriah where the most, most terrible soldiers, the ones who could fight the best were. The men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servant of David. Uriah, the Hittite, died also. So he set him in the worst part of the battle. He withdrew from him a little bit, and Uriah is killed there. So then Uriah, the Joab, sorry, sends a message to David to tell him what happened. And, he's, and, he, and he charged the messenger, when thou hast made an end of telling the matters of the war unto the king, and if so, be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, Wherefore approach ye so nigh into the city, uh, uh, when ye did fight, knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall. In other words, Joab is, it goes so bad that Uriah is not the only one that dies. Other people die. So Joab is like, listen, go and tell David what happened. But if he gets upset, tell him, eh, you know, we had some problems. So Joab is worried that the outcome isn't what David would want. So there's a whole lot in here about the shooters in the wall and from verse 21 to 24. Um, and how the shooter shot, and Uriah died. So there's a whole thing for the messenger to bring to David. But what David tells the messenger is what tells you the depth of sin to which David goes. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 25, the Bible says, Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city and overthrow it and encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. This story just gets worse and worse. In the final round of the story, David basically says, listen, it's war. When you send people to war, somebody's going to live, somebody's going to die. It's perfectly fine. But this was not a random killing was it they put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle they withdrew from him and that's why Uriah is dead and so when um, Bathsheba hears about it the Bible says she mourns for her husband so can you imagine the guilt she's feeling now can you imagine David thinks he's won he thinks his sin has been swept under the rug no one's ever going to know what he actually did and David the scripture tells us, the spirit of prophecy tells us, begins to withdraw from God. That's principle number five. Self-reliance plus guilt equals withdrawal from God. So what happens to people is, they get into sin, they get into a mess, they start doing their not stuff they're not supposed to do, they think that they can cover up their sin, they think they can hide, preachers that Oak would always just say, in a no-tell motel, they think they can get away with it and nobody's ever going to know. That self-reliance that you can cover up sin combined with the guilt of your sin makes you stay away from church. It makes you stay away from God. You withdraw from God. You don't want to be around God because you don't want your guilt to be exposed and you don't want to be in the presence of God. But here's what happens when you do what David did. You literally exalt people above God. You get this? If you're hiding your sin from your parents, you're neglecting the fact, that, the fact that God sees everything. Are you getting that? So you don't, if anytime you start trying to hide sin from people, remember that you can't hide it from God. It's important that you remember that. All right. Principle number five, continue. Amid the perils of his earlier life, David in conscious integrity could trust his case with God. The Lord's hand had guided him safely past the unnumbered snares that had been laid uh, for his feet. But now, look at this, guilty and unrepentant, this is from Patriarchs and Prophets, he did not ask help and guidance from heaven, but sought to extricate himself from the dangers in which sin had involved him. So just like Saul, he finds a way out. Saul went to the witch of Endor, David committed murder. Both of them tried to find a way out. And look at what Ellen White says. It's very, very important you get this. 
He did not ask for help and guidance from heaven. In other words, even when you are up to your neck in consequences of your sin, you still can turn it over God. The mistake you make is to get into sin trouble and try and keep it from God. Even when you're in a mess, even when sin is mounting up against you, it's very important that you turn everything over to God. That's critical. Never think that you're in so much trouble you can't tell God about it. That's what the devil wants. You then you won't tell God, you won't have your sin problem dealt with. Principle number six, sin never pays what it promises. Sin never pays what it promises. It always writes a check that is going to come up short. Ellen White says, Bathsheba, whose fatal beauty had proved a snare to the king, was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's bravest and most faithful officers. None could foresee what would be the result should the crime become known. The law of God pronounced the adulterer guilty of death. And the proud-spirited soldier, so shamefully wronged, might avenge himself by taking the life of the king or by exciting the nation to revolt. From the beginning, Satan has portrayed to men the gains to be won by transgression. Thus he seduced angels, thus he tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and thus he is still leading multitudes away from obedience to God. The path of transgression is made to appear desirable, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Happy they who have ventured in this way. Learn how bitter are the fruits of sin and turn from it betimes. Turns from it before fully manifesting themselves. God in his mercy did not leave David to be lowered out of ruin by the deceitful rewards of sin. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven 27 says, When the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house. She became his wife and bare him a son. Look at the last sentence of that verse. But the thing that he did what? It displeased the Lord. God was watching the whole time. David never turned. And at this point, David thinks he won. This gorgeous woman is now legally his wife because her husband is dead. She's pregnant with his child. David thinks he's gotten over. But we're told in the spirit of prophecy that, in fact, everyone in Jerusalem kind of figured out what was going on. The rumors had been swirling. David's reputation had fallen. People began to question the king because of these allegations. And the very spiritual footing of the kingdom was in trouble. Let me tell you something. Sin has a way to lead you to a place where you think you can be comfortable, but where in fact sin is rotting away your insides. Sin fascinates before it assassinates. The last principle of the night is this one. It's a wonder what you got to get if you're going to work in church. You're going to be involved in church the rest of your life. This is one that you need to get. This principle says, principle number seven says, even the brightest lights can go out. In America, we've had some great tele-evangelists. Later on, they found out that they were involved with um, sexual problems or they were you know, doing some funny stuff with money. I mean, over time, these things happen and there's this massive fall from grace. Even inside Adventism, we've had massive falls from grace and other things happen. Uh, the, the advice of the story is really this to you. Even David could fall. That means you should not put anyone on a pedestal. And a lot of us as Adventists, we have these Adventist celebrities, these people we kind of follow and we like and we root for. But I'm here to tell you that anybody can fall. The only person you can fully trust to never fall is Christ Jesus. So I don't elevate folk. I don't put folk down. I, I just know that when I need a role model, someone that I know is never going to fail me, I go and look for Christ. I don't look for people. You understand what I'm saying? Because if you look for people, people will disappoint you. It says Bathsheba observed the customary days of mourning for her husband. And at their close, David sent and fetched her to his house. She became his wife. Now look at what Ellen White says. She says, 
he whose tender conscience and his sense of honor would not permit him, even when in peril of his life, to put forth his hand against the Lord's anointed, had so fallen that he could wrong and murder one of his most faithful and most valiant soldiers and hope to enjoy undisturbed the reward of sin. Look at the last line. Alas, how had the fine gold become dim? How had the most fine gold changed? And I pray that none of you change. And I say this respectfully. Don't let sexual sin be your side chick on God. I won't say side piece. It may resonate better with you. Because for a lot of us, that's what happens. We won't drink. We don't smoke. We won't even go to clubs or party. So many things that we won't do. Certain foods we won't even eat. But in the realm of sex and sexuality, for many of us, this is the one place where we'll let our guard down and get mixed up in stuff we shouldn't. And what you got to understand is when you're doing these sins on the side and trying to hide it from God, it's just like a man who has a wife and has a woman on the side he's trying to hide from her. Any sexual relationship you're in, any sexual activity you're involved in needs to be an open book to God. If you're, you're not having proper sexual relations, if you can't pray before you do it. If you can't invite the angels of God to be present while you do it. See, when you're married, you can pray. You and your wife can get down on your knees and pray and say, Lord, give us strength. Let us have a good time. Thank you, Jesus. Perfectly fine. You're married. The Bible says in marriage, the bed is what? It's undefiled. You can pray. In fact, more married, more married couples should be praying like that. Amen. My point is, if you're doing it God's way, God can be involved in it. God can be there. You don't have to be ashamed. But when you can't involve God, when you got to hide it from the rest of the people in your church or in the fellowship, when you got to hide it from your Christian friends, who's being invited into the activity? You see, it's not that different from the drummers out there who take songs that were meant to praise God and put profanity in it. If you take the sexual act which was made so that man and woman would please God by being fruitful and multiplying and replenishing the earth and you put in things that are not of God and you do behavior that God can't be pleased with just like they are inviting in a spirit a dark demonic spirit so are you. A spirit that binds that leads people into sexual addiction. It causes havoc. One spirit is going to show up, not both. And unless you do it the way God says do it, you're inviting in the spirit of the enemy. And you want to know why so many men, this is what leads to our ruin? Because we allow the devil to get a foothold in our heart around this issue. And David would deal with this the rest of his life. We'll talk about that tomorrow night. This sin really impacts him and it impacts his children, it impacts the kingdom, it impacts everything. It is one of the greatest threats, Jesus being born, is this sin. We'll talk about that tomorrow night. Because Dave, Jesus is born in the lineage of David. This sin could have completely ruined that. In closing, I, have a, 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 I, was, I was invited to a prayer, a woman prayer breakfast for a a group of women, one of them worked where I was working at the time, I won't even say where I was and um, I was, the, there was only two men in the house, me <laughs> and the husband of the woman and when he saw me show up, he said listen man, I'm going to a sports bar and watching a football game, I'll see you later, he took off and I sat in the back, being the only man you know, and she wanted me to, to speak on certain um, spiritual issues, I think we were talking about prayer and how prayer works and how um, and these weren't Adventists. This was a mixed denomination, people from all different churches. And um, it was at a house, a really nice house in, in Los Angeles. So it was really cool. We were sitting there and we were going to discuss a different, different things. And so it wasn't, wasn't my turn to begin. You know, it was women, so they had tea and stuff. So I'm, you know, I'm just sitting in the back sipping tea, um, <laughs> having a good time, listening, being a fly on the wall. And the speaker before me caught my attention as soon as she got up. 
A young lady comes in, very attractive young lady, look very well put together. She goes up to the microphone, and she, uh, well, there's no microphone. She went up in front of the group in the house, we didn't need a microphone. And she starts talking, and she says, listen, I was a victim of sexual trafficking, and I'm here to tell you my story. I said, whoa. You know, you know, you see those posters. She don't look like one of those posters. She looks, I mean, she's got like Prada and Gucci on and stuff. She doesn't look like stuff like that would happen to her. She began to tell a story, and I want you to get this. She began to tell a story of when she was away at college at one of the finest historically black colleges in the United States. While she was there in her junior year of college and she was studying accounting or whatever she was studying, she one night decided to go out to a nightclub, have to dance and have a few drinks. And she said she wore something that was a bit provocative, her words, not mine. I don't know what she was wearing. And she was drinking. And she got out on the dance floor and she said she started to dance kind of um, seductively is the way I'll say it. And she was dancing and dancing and two women came onto the dance floor, walked over to her and said, listen, our boss wants to meet you. He, he, um, we're, we're models and he wants to make you a model. He was like, eh, that doesn't make any sense. She said, no, you don't understand. He, I'm, we're serious and we, you know, we can show you our shoots and they start showing them pictures from the phone. We get paid to be models. You would be an amazing model. The guy was up in one of the like in a balcony, like the nightclubs, like up in there, and he saw the girls talking to the dance floor. So he comes down onto the floor to talk to her and says, "Listen, you're the most, one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. I've never seen anybody move like that, look like you look. Um, you, you got it all together. We, we, I could make you a famous. I could make you a model. She, you know, and in her mind, she's like, well, I only have one and a half more years of school. It doesn't does it make sense? He's like, no, you don't understand. You can make a lot of money. It'll help you pay for school. Help you have money, pay off your loans." Blah, 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 blah. She said, okay. And within a week, she said, got a shoot lined up for her. She went, took all the pictures, and got a check. That was it. He said, okay, we have another shoot in about four weeks, but it's in New York, and you're going to have to raise the money for your plane ticket, raise the money for your hotel room, and a little bit, a few other uh, expenses. And if you have this much money, you can come on the shoot. She said, I don't have that kind of money. He said, okay, I have a way for you to make that kind of money. You know, I'll pick you up this time tonight, blah, 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 and I'll take you, we'll help you find a way to make some money. He takes her that night to a strip club and says, listen, you can make a lot of money here. And she's like, I don't do stuff like this. I was raised in the church. This isn't something that I would do. He said, you don't understand. If you just get to the next shoot, the money you make tonight will get you to the next shoot and you won't need to do this anymore. How, do you have another way you're going to make this kind of money? She said she had some drinks she, she, to loosen herself up. She she, she got into it, she went out there and she did it. She made so much money, she made more money in that one night she had made like working all summer. And she was hooked. So every she started going once a week, twice a week, and she started making this money and she went and did the shoot and the shoot was successful. She came back from the shoot, now money's flowing. She said her roommate started to wonder what was going on with her because she would disappear all the time, late into the night, and come back exhausted, classes the next day, someone who used to study and do all this. She said she used a lot of alcohol and even some other stuff to lower her inhibition, give her the courage to do what she would otherwise never do, and to, and to numb the pain of the sinful life she had found herself in. The story took a twist when one night the guy told her to come out the back of the, of the club. She came out of the back of the club and there was a there was a fancy car, the way I remember the story, in the back, and there was a guy there, and the guy said, listen, get in the back seat. She said, what? She said, no, he's going to lay with you. That's not the way he said it, but she said, get in the back seat. She's like, no. What I didn't tell you was that when he signed her up to be a model, he got her parents' address, he got some other family members' information, He knew, so he knew where her parents lived. That's the point. So when she was now saying, look, I'm not doing this. I'm not a prostitute. I'm not going in the backseat of the car with this strange man. He said, if you don't do that, I know where your parents live. I have gunmen in Los Angeles right now because she was in school on the other side of the country and I will have your parents murdered. And she did it. He gained control of her and she found out that he had this kind of control over many other women. And he would drag her around the country to events and she would have to do this kind of thing. I'm sitting there at this prayer breakfast like, whoa! 
She says, but I was raised, and she gets to the point of the story, she says, but I was raised Christian. And I knew that I had gone far from God in this, and I knew it wasn't all my fault. I knew this man was really manipulating. He was really evil. He was really violent. I knew the trouble I was in. She said, but I also knew that no matter how much trouble I was in, God get me out of it. He said she began to pray for deliverance. She had no idea how she was going to get out of it. By now, she's out. She messed up in school. Her life is in a tailspin. Parents wondering what's going on. They can hardly hear from her. She does talk to them. She talks to them for only little short periods of time. He begins to pray. And eventually, one of the other girls alerts the police as to what's going on. They arrest the man, testify against him. He's locked up. She's free. She says, after all of that happened, she says, then she realized how broken she was, how traumatized she was. She thought no man would ever marry her. She would never have kids. She had all kinds of psychological issues. And she said she thought she had nowhere to turn. But in the darkness of the moment, she turned back fully to Christ. And her healing began. She began to go back to church. She had to go to counseling. She had to come home and stay with her parents a while, the way I remember it. And she went through some things. She had to study some things. She had to uh, process it. And she said, now I go around and I tell women just how much God values them. That they ought to defend and protect their body temple. She said, but I don't just tell them that God values them if they've never had sexual sin. She says, I tell them that God values you no matter what you've done. And that's the reason you can trust him to get you out of whatever it is you're into. David wouldn't turn back. But let me tell you something. The devil is that man who wants to threaten your parents, threaten your life, threaten all kinds of things with you. He wants to make you think you'll never be happy. You'll never be popular unless you involve yourself in certain things. That is the science of the side piece. He wants to sell you a bill of goods that says you will be happy if you commit sin to the holy angels in heaven, to the even the garden, to the told people all through the Bible, to people like Samson. He told them all the same story. Unless you do this sin, you'll never know happiness. And in the end, it led to ruin. I'm here to tell you tonight that you don't have to be the devil's slave. That if you're willing to go to God, no matter what it is you've done wrong, no matter what it is you might be into, if you're not into anything, he can hold you and keep you out of mess. If you're in a mess, he can get you out of it. Don't be like David. Don't try and cover mess. Whatever it is you're into, take it to God. If you never take it to the pastor, if you never take it to your elders, if you never take it to your parents, take it to the Lord God. And trust him that he will deliver you. Amen? Because what a lot of people want you to think is that once you're damaged, you're damaged. And one of the things I liked about that young lady's testimony, it was a crazy testimony. It was an interesting testimony. But one of the things I liked about her testimony was no matter what happened on the backside of her trauma, she learned that she needed to trust God even more. Some of you have been traumatized. Trust God now. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed. I'm going to do another silent appeal. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to stand up. This appeal is for deep inside of you. This is the appeal that says at some point you've got to realize your value. At some point you've got to realize just how special you are to God. And that he's given us these challenges. He's given us um, a world that is difficult. He's given us <clears throat> all of our struggles to make us stronger. The struggle with, with intimacy and relationships is a tough one, but if you fight the good fight of faith in Christ Jesus, winning this victory will make you spiritually very strong. So what I want you to pray about tonight is not following David's path of sinning and covering sin. But tonight I want you to pray and ask God to help you to turn everything over to him and to trust that by the blood of Jesus Christ you can gain victory over sin.
And we all need the power of the blood to gain victory. Amen? Father God, I pray over your students tonight. I pray over these young people here at the University of Ghana. Lord, this campus is a, is a secular one. Even on the way here to, to have our meeting tonight, we went by people who may or may not be messing with spiritualism knowingly or not knowingly. Father God, this is a light on this campus are these young people. These are they that have been called out of darkness into a marvelous light. Father God, the devil would love to ruin them by getting them to engage in behavior that goes contrary to your word. He would love to shackle them to people they should not be with because they've been intimate with them. He'd love to shackle them with a lifetime of shame and guilt. He'd love to shackle them to addiction, to chemicals or sexual addictions. He'd love to shackle them, Lord, with a feeling that they have gone so far that you'll never accept them. Tonight, Lord, by the power of your Holy Ghost, break every chain. Tonight, Lord, by the power of the Spirit of the living God, by the blood of Jesus, wash away every stain of sin. Wash away the desire for sin and make them whole and clean, Lord, that they may be right servants in your kingdom and that they would know the joy of your salvation. We pray this prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Let the church say amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.